welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Prakash Gawali from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Prakash is currently a professor of medicine, director of neurogastroenterology and motility, and program director of gastroenterology fellowship training at the Division of Gastroenterology, Washington University School of Medicine, St. Louis. Prakash's academic interests include esophageal motility, gastroesophageal reflux disease, and functional bowel disorders. He's been a critical component of several key working groups and consensus committees involving esophageal physiologic testing, and he's also part of the Chicago Classification 4.0 Working Group. So we couldn't have a better person on our podcast today than Prakash, who's going to discuss his recent article, ACG Clinical Guidelines, Clinical Use of Esophageal Physiologic Testing, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology earlier this year. So Prakash, welcome. Let's begin very simply. What prompted the development of this guideline? Thank you, Brian. The guideline was developed in recognition of the advances in the understanding of benign esophageal disease and the tools available for esophageal testing over the past decade. There was a need for clarity in which esophageal physiologic testing is performed and to determine which test is indicated in each given scenario. Also, what each test can provide in terms of evidence supporting or refuting organic esophageal disorders. Okay, that's great to put it in context. And Prakash, you obviously do lots of teaching, and we're all trained to take a really good history with the notion, and this really goes back to Osler, that a careful history is often all that is required to make an accurate diagnosis. But how good are esophageal symptoms at making an accurate diagnosis? And should we use standardized questionnaires to improve our diagnostic capabilities? A good history is an important starting point, but in esophageal disorders, the problem with history alone is that multiple disease processes can present with similar symptoms. For instance, although heartburn is a typical reflux symptoms, motility disorders, functional esophageal disorders, and even achalasia, which is the polar opposite of reflux disease, can present with heartburn. So history can drive the initial empirical management approach and can channel investigation towards specific testing modalities. But as we described in the guideline, it does not replace invasive investigation, especially when patients continue to have symptoms despite empirical management. Questionnaires, on the other hand, are useful in qualifying and quantifying symptom burden, but do not replace a good history and clinical evaluation even though these questionnaires can be of immense value as clinical research tools. Wonderful. Thank you. So discussing some of these tools, you know, as we're going to go through this podcast, we now have a number of interesting tools and techniques to assess esophageal physiology. So does that mean that upper endoscopy is outdated? No, endoscopy is not outdated. Endoscopy is the most specific test we have to evaluate disorders that affect the esophageal mucosa or the esophageal lumen. And it's important to perform at the outset before other invasive tests are performed in patients with persisting esophageal symptoms. It's important to remember that endoscopy has excellent rule-in value and also reassurance value. 
It can provide visual and biopsy evidence for certain disorders like eosinophilic esophagitis, for instance. However, one has to accept the fact that a normal endoscopy does not rule out reflux disease or even achalasia, and that a normal endoscopy is expected in functional esophageal disorders. Prakash, this is great. So now we've done that endoscopy and we'll start talking about testing, but not all providers have access to high-resolution esophageal manometry. In that situation where they don't have access to that critical tool, for patients with symptoms of dysphagia when endoscopy is normal, a barium esophagram is often the next test ordered. But is this a good test of esophageal function? A well-done barium study is extremely useful in the diagnosis of esophageal obstructive processes, such as strictures, motility disorders such as achalasia, and especially anatomic abnormalities such as a hiatus hernia. However, one has to recognize that barium studies cannot be used to diagnose reflux disease because reflux seen on barium does not distinguish pathologic reflux. Also, achalasia remains possible even with adequate esophageal barium clearance. So as long as these limitations are considered, a barium study is often utilized appropriately after endoscopy is negative when manometry is not available. Okay, so Prakash, focusing on the barium esophagram for a minute and noting that it is clinically useful, if providers are going to order this test, ideally, how should it be performed? In the upright position or supine? Do you do it for one minute or five minutes? Do you use a barium tablet or skip the barium tablet? What's your practice? So the different ways in which a barium study can be performed need to be tailored to why exactly it's being done. For instance, a timed upright barium esophagram is extremely useful in following up patients with achalasia after therapy. A barium pill swallow can identify subtle strictures. Therefore, evaluation for strictures should include the barium pill, and evaluation for achalasia is best performed with a timed study with images at both one minute and five minutes in the upright position. On the other hand, studies performed to assess esophageal and EGJ anatomy and hiatus hernias require the supine study with provocative maneuvers to raise intra-abdominal pressure, which will better define these hiatus hernias. So it's the indication for the study that determines how exactly the study should be performed. Prakash, those are very helpful comments to really tailor the barium esophagram to the patient and his or her symptoms. Let's think a little bit about the high-resolution esophageal manometry, and the standard protocol now involves 10 supine test swallows, but the new guideline recommends a provocative maneuver called multiple rapid swallows. What exactly is this test, and why is it important? Well, when uh, small sips of water are swallowed in rapid succession, esophageal peristalsis is completely inhibited during the swallows, but after the last swallow of the series, there is a contraction wave that is more robust than standard swallows. The ability of a patient's esophagus to increase contraction vigor in this fashion after multiple rapid swallows is termed contraction reserve. This turns out to be a very useful metric in assessing the contraction potential of the esophagus, especially when standard swallows are ineffective or when a diagnosis of ineffective esophageal motility or IEM is made. So when contraction reserve is present on multiple rapid swallows, the likelihood of post-fundoplication dysphagia is lower, and esophageal acid exposure burden is lower 
compared to when there is absence of contraction reserve. So multiple rapid swallows are going to be recommended as part of the protocol for esophageal high-resolution manometry on a routine basis in the upcoming Chicago 4.0 guidelines. Wonderful. Sounds like an important thing to do, and it really doesn't add that much time to the motility study. So focusing on this new guideline again, another supplemental test recommended is the rapid drink challenge. What is this test and why is it important? So the rapid drink challenge consists of 100 to 200 ml of water administered through a straw in the sitting position. This challenges the esophagus to empty this in a seamless fashion into the stomach, and a normal esophagus can easily handle this. However, if there is latent obstruction at the esophagogastric junction, such as with tight mechanical issue or a motor issue like latent achalasia or achalasia spectrum disorders, there will be pressurization in the esophagus because the water will not empty rapidly or seamlessly. Therefore, a rapid drink challenge is most useful in dysphagia patients where standard swallows during manometry do not yield an obstructive diagnosis or demonstrate a confusing pattern such as EGJ outflow obstruction where there is apparent resistance of the esophageal gastric junction normal or intact esophageal body. Wonderful. It appears we're getting more and more information from this test in the motility lab that will help our patients. So, Prakash, most centers perform intraluminal impedance measurements at the time of high-resolution esophageal manometry. How should clinicians use the reported data about bolus transit? What is the clinical significance of that? So, intraluminal impedance measured during HRM shows the bolus. In other words, the bolus can be visualized. However, at the present day, currently available software only allows a qualitative rather than a qualitative interpretation of this visualization of the bolus. So impedance can be used as an adjunct tool to support the finding of esophageal bolus retention or abnormal clearance. It has sometimes been used to confirm abnormal bolus clearance with these provocative maneuvers like the rapid drink challenge. New metrics are being developed that will hopefully quantify the impedance visualization on the screen. These are not quite ready for prime time, but hopefully over the next few years, these will become available. Great, and looking forward to that update in a few years. Prakash, high-resolution esophageal manometry has really changed how we think about the diagnosis and treatment of achalasia. I don't want to focus too much on this because we have a separate podcast coming up on guidelines for achalasia, but we can't have any discussion about esophageal physiology testing and not review the Chicago classification of achalasia. Can you describe and help our listeners visualize the three manometric types of achalasia and explain why categorizing patients using the Chicago classification is so important? Achalasia is essentially a disorder of esophageal outflow obstruction due to a poorly relaxing lower esophageal sphincter. And this is common to all subtypes of achalasia. It's essentially an obstruction at the lower esophageal sphincter. Now, what determines subtypes is what happens in the esophageal body. So esophageal body peristalsis is also abnormal in achalasia. In subtype one, there is no esophageal body peristalsis, and there is no pressurization during swallowing, which suggests that the muscle of the esophageal wall has lost its tone or that the esophagus is dilated. This might indicate a later stage of the disease and requires 
some kind of disruption or destroying of the lower esophageal sphincter for symptom relief. So typically, this is a myotomy or a pneumatic dilation. Now, subtype 2 is similar to type 1 in that there is no esophageal body peristalsis, but the wall has not lost its tone and is able to generate pressurization during swallows. This is a good indicator that the esophagus will empty well if the obstruction at the lower esophageal sphincter is relieved. Regardless of which technique of management is utilized, the patient generally does well. And sometimes peristalsis actually returns in the esophageal body if the obstruction is relieved. Subtype 3 has some retained esophageal body contraction, but the swallows are not normal. They're either premature or spastic. The significance of subtype 3 is that in addition to the lower esophageal sphincter, the muscle of the esophageal body also needs to be disrupted with either a long myotomy or a palm for adequate symptom relief. So to summarize, the subtypes can direct how best to treat the patient and can predict symptomatic outcome after therapy. Subtype 2 responds the best. Subtype 3 has the worst response. Prakash, that's great. Thanks for that description. really puts a visual image in my mind and our listeners' minds. Let's shift gears. Flip, the functional lumen imaging probe. It's got a lot of attention recently. What exactly is Flip, and what is its role in clinical practice right now? Should this be a standard tool in every center performing esophageal manometry, or is this a test best used in referral centers and esophageal research centers? The flip consists of a catheter with a distending balloon and impedance electrodes that is placed in the esophagus during sedated endoscopy after the endoscopy part of the procedure. Flip uses impedance-based physics to generate cross-sectional areas of esophageal lumen. It assesses compliance and distensibility. And there is a new metric called distensibility index that is utilized to assess these biophysical properties of the esophageal lumen and the lower esophageal sphincter. The stensibility index is the ratio between cross-sectional area and the distending pressure within the balloon. So a low distensibility index indicates a stiff or non-compliant lumen, which can be seen with well-developed motor disorders like achalasia or tight strictures as seen in eosinophilic esophagitis. FLIP is actually a complementary tool that can be used in conjunction with history, with manometry, with barium radiography, to better define obstructive processes at the esophagogastric junction in particular, especially when other tests of esophageal function do not demonstrate consistent or conclusive findings. The newer versions of FLIP can also provide an assessment of esophageal body motor function. FLIP requires an understanding of esophageal physiology it can be performed by any endoscopist, but they need to be comfortable with interpreting motor phenomena induced by balloon distension. This, in my view, is the biggest barrier to widespread dissemination of FLIP. Okay, that's great, Prakash. We'll see how this evolves in the next few years. Let's think now about that patient who we just diagnosed with achalasia, who then undergoes treatment, whether with pneumatic dilation or surgery or POM, per oral endoscopic myotomy. What is the best way to assess response after this type of intervention? Do we just follow symptoms? Do we schedule a barium esophagram? Do we repeat high-resolution esophageal manometry? Well, symptoms alone are inadequate for follow-up, although those patients with achalasia without symptoms after treatment are probably doing well. Barium esophagography, especially a timed upright barium study, is more likely to demonstrate problems with emptying or incomplete treatment at the lower esophageal sphincter. 
Endoscopy is more likely to demonstrate mucosal complications such as esophagitis, stricture, or opportunistic processes like candidiasis. These two tests have their specific benefits and need to be ordered depending on how the patient is presented after they have been treated. Manometric parameters such as the integrated relaxation pressure or IRP are less reliable after achalasia treatment. This may be one area where FLIP may become an important modality for evaluation of achalasia patients who remain symptomatic with a transit symptom like dysphagia after they've undergone definitive therapy. Prakash, thank you. Let's shift gears again. I know we're keeping our listeners really actively involved here. And let's think a little bit about pH testing, which is so widely available, although when and how to do it still remains controversial. In a nutshell, when do you recommend 48-hour wireless pH capsule testing, and when do you recommend impedance pH monitoring? The basic guiding principle is that reflux testing is performed off BPI therapy if reflux disease has not been proven in the past. For the average patient, as long as the test is done off BPI, any form of reflux monitoring can be utilized. Each of these modalities, such as wireless testing and impedance pH testing, has its own specific benefits in a niche population. So wireless pH monitoring is most useful in demonstrating day-to-day variation in reflux exposure, and especially in grueling out pathologic acid exposure if symptoms are not particularly suggestive of reflux. It is also useful in confirming or refuting reflux symptom association in patients with infrequent symptoms such that a 24-hour study may not provide this evidence. Impedance pH monitoring has highest value in accurately identifying reflux episodes. It's also useful in diagnosing behavioral disorders like supergastric belching and rumination. Impedance pH monitoring is the only test that can be performed without stopping PPI, but this Testing on PPI is only done when patients have previously been proven to have reflux disease and have incomplete relief with therapy. Impedance pH monitoring also provides potential for uh, new metrics such as baseline impedance evaluation and the post-reflux swallow-induced peristaltic wave. These are adjunctive metrics that can be used to either support or refute reflux disease. So, Prakash, you've given our listeners a wealth of information As we wind down here, what are your thoughts on an empiric trial of a PPI? Is a positive response diagnostic of reflux, thus negating the need for any further testing, such as upper endoscopy or pH testing? A PPI test has good sensitivity but suboptimal specificity for a diagnosis of reflux disease. So what this means is that patients who respond may not always have reflux disease, and those who do not respond sometimes have true reflux disease. So in general, if a young patient with typical symptoms, no alarm symptoms, responds to empiric PPI, it may be fine to just continue management and believe in the PPI test response. However, if the patient's older, maybe older than 45 or 50 years, has dysphagia, anemia, weight loss, a predisposition to Barrett's esophagus or esophageal cancer or other alarm symptoms, then further investigation is indicated with an endoscopy. If a patient does not adequately respond to acid suppression, if the patient wants invasive reflux therapy, or some would say even if the patient's looking to long-term acid suppressive therapy, some form of evaluation to document pathologic esophageal acid burden may be prudent in addition to the PPI test. 
Prakash, that's wonderful. This really has been a wonderful conversation. You've provided our listeners with a wealth of information. Any last thoughts for our listeners? I'd like to say that reflux disease and functional disorders are both very common, and they can coexist in the same patients. Significant motility disorders like achalasia and behavioral disorders like supergastric and belching and rumination can also participate in the symptoms. So understanding what each physiologic test can do, confirming or refuting these diagnostic processes can help us choose the right test for each patient scenario. And this in turn can improve our management recommendations. Prakash, once again, thank you for a wonderful podcast. We appreciate all your insights into these complicated tests and procedures, and we're looking forward to seeing the Chicago 4.0 guidelines soon. Thank you very much, Brian. My pleasure. Thank you.